Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 202, The Great War Begins. Now, first as always, I want to thank our newest patrons, Paul Siebold, I hope I got your name right, and Tabitha Alberts. Big thank you to Paul and Tabitha for supporting the podcast and my ability to buy all these expensive history books to make this as good as possible for you all. So with that, let's get right into it. Now, last time we looked a lot at the experience of minorities in the aftermath of the Second Balkan War the declaration of an independent republic by Muslims in Western Thrace, Bulgaria's diplomatic isolation, and the country's resulting difficulty in finding desperately needed financial assistance abroad. Vemero and Albanian revolutionaries also jointly organized an uprising against the Serbs, but were quickly crushed by the Serbian army with Greek assistance. The result was tens of thousands of Bulgarians and Albanians fleeing Serbian oppression and bloody reprisals in Macedonia. Then, the Treaty of Constantinople was signed, ending war with the Ottomans, though its provisions allowing the Bulgarians of Eastern Thrace to return to their homes were quickly undone. Elections were also held in an attempt by the ruling Radoslavov liberals to gain a majority but this ploy failed as anti-war parties like the agrarians and the socialists made major gains. As a result, Radoslavov almost immediately scheduled new elections to try again. So we begin in early 1914 with those elections. Ahead of the voting, Alexander Malinov and the Radical Democratic Party had approached the agrarian and socialist parties with a proposal to form a coalition to be more competitive. These parties combined had outpolled the ruling liberals in the past election, so if they did join forces, they had a real chance to govern the country. I'll quote Bell's kind of description of the agrarian response. Quote, Stambuliski urged the Congress to reject this proposal. He argued that even though the Bulgarian Agrarian National Union, Banu, would be the single largest member of the coalition, it could not participate without compromising its principles. Compromise and the betrayal of ideals in return for power, he said, was a characteristic of political parties. The agrarian union, as an estatist organization, could not remain true to itself while moderating its program in order to make its leaders ministers. The agrarian union would govern Bulgaria, he continued, but only when it commanded a majority on its own in the National Assembly." End quote. So there's a reminder that, you know, although the agrarians, if you recall, after a lot of back and forth, did decide to begin to kind of function as a political party, they still don't really consider themselves a political party. They consider themselves more of a, you know, kind of real expression of farmers, of the agrarian class in Bulgaria. So, yeah, you can think of almost a little like, you know, maybe some some sort of socialist groups saying, you know, we're not necessarily just a political party, we're a, a representation of the workers. It's kind of a similar thing. So 
But it's also a, a tendency that we will see a lot through the 20th and 21st century in Bulgarian politics to insist on kind of ideological purity and never making compromises, even if it means not getting what you want. But that's a whole other story. So the agrarians unanimously decided to forbid the party from participating in any coalitions. Again, really showing the strength that Stambuliski has in the party, that he said, we're not doing this, and absolutely all the deputies agreed. It was also a reminder that, yes, even though the agrarians had decided to become a political, a political party, they remained more of a social movement at heart. Now, this was also a reminder of what a transformation the agrarians had made from the very poorly disciplined and chaotic party of 1901 into this new one that is rigidly disciplined around a strong ideological core, a transformation that, again, Stambuliski really pioneered. So, all that is to say, the opposition parties are not organizing a coalition, increasing the chance of Radoslavov for obtaining the majority he needed. That said, he didn't want to fail again, and so Radoslavov proceeded to manipulate the vote however he could. For one, while in this election the population of the newly annexed territories were allowed to vote, you recall the last election was very shortly after these territories were acquired and there wasn't really time to kind of set up the election there. So yes, these people were now allowed to vote, but opposition parties were forbidden from campaigning there by the military administrations that still ran them. So Radoslavov basically just used the army to say, yeah, my party can campaign in these territories. The people against me can't. Ultimately, the new elections were held on February the 23rd. And once again, they actually set a record for voter participation, reaching about 67% overall and up to 80% of the newly annexed territories. Kind of unsurprising, you know, we see this throughout history when, when people are allowed to vote in democratic elections for the first time, usually there's a lot of enthusiasm. Rural areas also saw a very sharp rise in voter participation. Now, Radoslavov did succeed in winning a very narrow majority with about 45% of the vote. So because of how the seats are proportioned, 45% did get him just over 50% of the deputies. Meanwhile, the socialists lost quite a bit of ground, gaining only about 11% compared to 20% just a few months earlier. In response, they would hold a conference to potentially unify, remember there's the broad and narrow socialists, a few months after this, but like all of their attempts, it failed and the socialist parties, the two of them, remained divided. Now the agrarians, by contrast, increased their vote share when not considering the newly annexed territories where they couldn't campaign. See, it's not quite fair to compare that, but the agrarians did very well. You know, I mentioned there was an increase in rural voting. That certainly helped. Overall, though, the liberals have a majority, and the agrarians remain the second largest party. But not the Democrats under Malinov. They've actually moved into third place as they've steadily grown the, their base of middle-class support over the previous three elections. Konstantinova summarizes the elections, writing simply that, quote, "...restless and anxious about the destiny of his state," At a disturbing time among hostile neighbors, the Bulgarian voter once again gave his support to the government. End quote. But the reality on the ground in Bulgaria's new territories, particularly Pirin Macedonia, went beyond the government not allowing other political parties to campaign there. One candidate who had attempted to run for office in this region noted, quote, 
widespread bribery, corruption, intimidation, thuggery, and suspension of citizens' electoral rights, all condoned and often inspired by the authorities. Even the district police chiefs do not hesitate to admit that they are powerless against their own constables, end quote. So this is something that, you know, spoiler alert, we're going to see a lot more in the future, but there's a degree of lawlessness at this point in Pitt and Macedonia, and officials are kind of governing with a very heavy hand. Now, that quote was from Marsha McDermott, who then went on to explain that, quote, a picture of widespread corruption and incompetence on the part of mayors, tax collectors, etc. This time from a government source also emerged from a report by Ivan Stefanov, chief of police in the Melnik district, to the Ministry of Interior on March the 5th, 1914. The report also contains an urgent request for the recall of a senior mounted policeman recently seconded to the district from Sofia. Although he describes the man as a zealous supporter of Radoslavov's party, with whom we have done a great deal of good work, Stefanov wishes to dispense with his services because he gets drunk, runs up bills and does not pay, and takes other liberties, with the net result that the party is being discredited rather than strengthened by his presence. End quote. So it's interesting, even, you know, these are largely Bulgarian territories. It seems that uh, people sent from Sofia to these territories sort of uh, act like these are lawless places where they can kind of do as they like. But even as Radoslava finally achieved his majority, a new Russian ambassador arrived in Sofia with the primary mission of taking Radoslava's pro-Austrian government down. Constant describes what happened, writing, quote, he told Ferdinand that Bulgaria would obta could obtain a French loan with ease. It merely needed the replacement of the present government with a Russophile one. This was both blatant and inept. Russia's attitude led to a redoubled effort by the Bulgarian government to obtain money elsewhere. End quote. So as usual, Russian diplomacy in Bulgaria is a bit heavy-handed, and they simply say, yeah, just if you have a government that likes us, we'll give you a loan, otherwise we won't but this kind of backfires. Within a few months, French banks would ultimately deny Bulgaria's request for a loan, despite some pressure from the government in Paris to accept. Remember that, you know, at this point, Bulgaria is still looking like a pretty interesting ally in the region, and there's some, some people in Western governments like France that want to build relations there. Now, at the same time, France was providing massive loans to finance Serbian military expansion under the false assumption that Austria was doing the same for Bulgaria. So it's a bit ironic. They, they simply assumed, well, you know, clearly Austria must be financing Bulgarian military expansion, so we need to match them. But that was not the case. Ultimately, though, it would be German banks that would finally come to Bulgaria's rescue, offering the credit Bulgaria desperately needed to basically finance the running of the government in the aftermath of the Balkan Wars. In return, Bulgaria was obligated to assign a portion of its revenue to service the debt, to grant a concession to a German company to build a rail line to Bulgaria's new port on the Aegean Sea, and for the Germans to take over government-controlled mines in Pernik and Bobovdol, both kind of south of Sofia. Now, this was, you know, a fairly, you could say, difficult set of requests, but this all went through, even though actually the German Kaiser was against it. Recall the Kaiser always kind of doesn't like Ferdinand, and there's a bit of back and forth between them. But still, 
Despite Kaiser's opposition, the government, gov- the German government rather, approves this loan. Now, importantly for Bulgaria, this meant that it was able to obtain the financing it needed without formally committing to the central powers or the Entente. However, many had felt that you know taking this loan from Germany more or less committed Bulgaria to the German-led central powers, and the loans were actually widely unpopular in Bulgaria because people were kind of a little bit hesitant to commit to either alliance. That said, the possibility of the two great European alliances, the Entente and the Central Powers going to war, was pretty clear to everyone. It was obvious that this was a very distinct possibility. But for now, Bulgaria remained staunchly neutral, but with a burning desire to revise the Treaty of Bucharest, meaning that there remained a possibility that Bulgaria could participate in any war if offered the right territories. For now, though, it's clear that Bulgaria is leaning to the central powers, but with nothing set in stone. Now, throughout the Balkans, resistance against the Treaty of uh, Bucharest on the ground was still growing. Last episode, we talked about the uprising against Serbia and the establishment of a Muslim republic against Bulgaria. Now it was Romania's turn as the Dobruja Brotherhood was established as a secret Bulgarian organization committed to combating Romanian authority and control in southern Dobruja. Though this was done largely through propaganda and working to maintain Bulgarian institutions and not through violence like the Macedonian organizations, it was still yet another example of these kind of grassroots efforts to resist the territorial changes that just happened as a result of the Balkan Wars. Now, in Dobruja, the Romanian state was really beginning to flex its muscles. On April the 1st, a new law forced a third of all land in the territory to either be handed over to the government or for the owners of the land to pay the government its equivalent value. The goal was pretty straightforward, to convince Bulgarians living in the region to give up, sell their land, and move to Bulgaria. The law also put Bulgarian under a kind of military rule, changing the names of many settlements to ancient or even Turkish names away from Bulgarian ones, and generally restricting the rights of everyone living in southern Dobruja in a bid to impose and maintain control over a territory where you'll recall that only about 2% of its residents were actually Romanian. So it's not going to be too easy to control a territory that has been part of another country for decades at this point, and again, where only about 2% of the population are Romanians. So, yeah, they're starting to bring in a somewhat heavy hand. But while the Romanian authorities were still refraining from using outright violence to suppress ethnic Bulgarians in these newly acquired territories, Serbia had no such qualms. In March, Serbia began mobilizing young men in their newly acquired Macedonian territories. This seemed like quite a bold move, considering the region had been in full revolt just six months earlier. Now, unsurprisingly, the population of Macedonia was very upset at the prospect of their young men being drafted to fight in the Serbian army that had just brutally put down an uprising there. Upon arrival in Serbia, one of the first cohorts sang the Bulgarian national anthem and openly declared that they were Bulgarians and did not want to serve in the Serbian army. Tensions built up until April when the recruits were required to formally take an oath into the Serbian army. The recruits debated how to respond before deciding to refuse. When the time came and a priest began to read the oath, the young recruits shouted things like, We are Bulgarians. We do not accept the oath. Long live Bulgaria. 
The commanding officer noted how the men had clearly been influenced by what he termed Bulgarian propaganda. Now, some of these young recruits managed to escape to Bulgaria, while others were tortured to reveal who initiated this resistance. Ultimately, 220 recruits who refused to take the oath to Serbia were shot. Marshal McDermott notes how, quote, even when the Turks had taken Bulgarian children to train as fanatical Muslim janissaries, they had taken only some and left the majority. Even when they had forced whole communities to change their religion, they had never forbidden them to speak Bulgarian or compelled them to speak Turkish. Side note, the you know, mass conversions, as you know, is, is not a whole lot of evidence that happened. The special degree on public security introduced into the territories recently acquired by Serbia made the young Turk legislation against Cheti appear positively liberal in comparison. The very provisions and wording of the decree indicated that the authorities were not dealing with isolated criminals, but an entire population that was so recalcitrant and rebellious that, for all the official Serbian propaganda which claimed that Macedonia was inhabited by Serbs, it could not be given the same rights and freedoms under the constitution as the rest of the population of the Serbian kingdom, end quote. So quoting Marsha McDermott quite a bit here, I still have some problems with her book, but she has some good analysis here. And I, I think this is a good summation of the situation that Serbia is facing a problem where, you know, resistance against them in Macedonia is not under, you know, isolated pockets. It's on a very, very large scale. And as we've talked about quite a bit, very, very few people in Vardar Macedonia identified with Serbia and, and sort of associated them with Serbia. So it's a little akin to the situation in southern Dobruja, where trying to control a territory where next to no one really identifies or wants to be a part of your country is just exceptionally difficult. Now, actions like this from Serbia, Romania, Greece, and the Ottoman Empire led to more and more refugees crossing Bulgaria's borders to seek safety. And as a result, even though the Bulgarian state at this point was desperately short of resources, the new National Assembly felt compelled to assign another 200,000 leva to support all these new arrivals. But the National Assembly was also interested in placing blame for the country's isolation and its general situation. On May the 9th, they created a commission to look into the Balkan Wars, including how military supplies were acquired, the diplomacy leading up the war, and just generally the conduct of the war. Ivan Geshop, for his part, wrote a book in his own defense, but many still wish to find some way to punish him and Danev for their leadership of the country during uh, the lead-up and during the actual Balkan Wars. Now, on the first anniversary of the beginning of the Second Balkan War, Stambuliski said in a speech to the National Assembly, quote, of those responsible for the catastrophe, Ferdinand is the most guilty. He should be strung up head downwards in front of the statue of the Tsar Liberator. End quote. But while Bulgaria was still reckoning with its recent past, the world was moving ahead at breakneck speed. On June the 15th, 1914, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Franz Ferdinand, was driving through the Bosnian city of Sarajevo, where he was shot and killed by Gavrilo Princip, a member of the Serbian paramilitary organization, the Black Hand. Now, the Black Hand was not officially part of the Serbian government, but the two were deeply intertwined and collaborated closely. A report by the Bulgarian ambassador in Belgrade wrote of how the editor of a Serbian newspaper told him of how, quote, 
the assassination had delighted all Serbians and that their own regret is that the shot had not also killed the old emperor after whose death Serbians expected the monarchy to fall and rich plunder for themselves. The general impression is that the assassination had been expected. From my conversations with several Serbians, I gathered the impression that consciences here are not clear, for it is evident that the assassination was a result of a plot, plot hatched in Belgrade. The two assassins had been in Belgrade for several weeks, end quote. An Austrian council in Belgrade reported a Serbian official saying, quote, Now it's the turn of the other Ferdinand, and then we can quickly complete our work, end quote. Now, it is ironic that both the Austro-Hungarian heir and Tsar Ferdinand were targets for Serbian assassination as the two strongly disliked each other, and the Tsar of Bulgaria saw the death of the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne as a bit of a relief. But, as we all probably know, with his death, events began to accelerate quickly. Austria-Hungary soon issued an ultimatum to Serbia with demands that they knew Belgrade would never accept. Much like the ultimatum issued at the beginning of the First Balkan War, it was really designed to function as an excuse for war. The great powers began mobilizing one after another because if one did, they all had to, because failing to mobilize against a neighbor could easily prove a fatal mistake. As a result, within about a month, everyone was mobilizing and Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, followed soon by the other great powers. The world was at war. Now, Russia felt it had no choice but to back Serbia because, as we know, in its actions during the Balkan Wars, basically Russia had left itself with Serbia as its only possible Balkan ally. It was Serbia or completely abandoning the region, and it was a region that Russia felt was vital for its security interests. So, you know, Basically, incompetent Russian diplomacy had left Russia with only a singular option in the Balkans. The betrayal of Bulgaria made this inevitable. Of course, the Russians could have taken a page from Tsar Ferdinand's book and actually worked to create a kind of balanced policy between Serbia and Romania that would have given them a lot more flexibility in dealing with this war. But they hadn't done that. And so Russia felt it had to back Serbia. France felt it absolutely had to back Russia because it couldn't fight Germany alone and hope to win. The Germans felt they had to back Austria-Hungary because they couldn't risk their southern neighbors' collapse and disillusion. Now, you've probably heard these events described plenty of times before, and but I think it's important to understand the key role Russia's actions in the Balkan Wars played. If Russia had stepped up and fulfilled its role as a fair arbiter between Bulgaria and Serbia, it wouldn't have necessarily had to go to war over Serbia because it could have relied on Bulgaria as a regional ally instead. That said, many think that public opinion in Russia alone would have compelled them to back Serbia regardless, but it's hard to know for certain. Now, the Radoslavov government, with the backing of Ferdinand, quickly declared Bulgarian neutrality. They quite rightly felt that a lack of proper diplomatic preparation had been catastrophic for the Balkan Wars, and they were not eager to repeat that mistake. That said, it was clear to everyone that the government in Sofia leaned towards the Central Powers, but for now, Bulgaria was still utterly exhausted from the Balkan Wars and content to simply play both sides for advantage while seeing what would happen. As Bell notes, quote, the value of Bulgarian aid to either side was very great. 
Lying athwart the lines of communication between Germany and Turkey, Bulgaria was the key to continued Ottoman participation in the war. Moreover, Bulgaria's sizable, well-equipped army, much of which had been seen service during the Balkan Wars, was a dagger that could be plunged into the back of either Serbia or Turkey. Now, Greece and Romania also declared neutrality. Like Bulgaria, they wanted to wait and see how the conflict would develop. One irony here was that Romania was technically aligned to the Central Powers, and crucially, their concern to keep Bucharest in that alliance, in their camp, was one of the reasons they supported its attack on Bulgaria. Yet, just as many in Bulgaria had predicted loudly to the Austro-Hungarians, a year later, the Romanians were ready to abandon this alliance and, you know, eye the potential Austro-Hungarian province of Transylvania. So, Again, one of these alliance groups had sort of bet everything on one Balkan state only to be immediately let down by that Balkan state. So, so many of the decisions that led to the kind of abandonment of Bulgaria and the encouragement of Bulgaria's neighbors to invade them were now proving to be not the wisest decisions. So, two weeks into the war, Russia actually, interestingly enough, proposed an alliance with Bulgaria aimed to bring it into the war, but Sofia rejected this. The offer demonstrated the long-standing schizophrenia of Russia's policy towards Bulgaria, to utterly abandon it one moment and then request its friendship, again, without promising specific territorial uh, gains and things, without you know, promising Macedonia or anything, the next so, I mean, the fact that, you know, Russia essentially allowed Serbia to take Macedonia and then wants to have Serbia and Bulgaria as allies, the next moment is, again, just remarkable. I don't know what Russian diplomats were thinking. It, it seems there's this consistent thing where a lot of Russian officials just believe that the Bulgarian public are so inherently Russophilic that they just love Russia so much in their hearts that they're willing to, you know, side with Russia and to do what Russia wants without getting anything in return, just purely out of gratitude. But time and time again, we've seen the Russians are wrong about that, but they don't seem to learn the lesson. Now, as a part of these negotiations, the Russians asked Serbia what territory it would potentially be willing to give Bulgaria for Sofia to join the alliance. But Belgrade didn't just say, we're not willing to give any territory they refused to even respond to the question, which gives some indication of the problems and the challenges that the Entente are going to face trying to get Bulgaria as an ally. Because, you know, for Bulgaria, the price of joining either alliance, the main price it wants is Macedonia. And it seems that the Serbs are 100% unwilling to even consider that. But that might change. Who knows? So, despite... It's neutrality. The Bulgarian government knew that this new war on the European continent required some kind of response. Soon, they declared martial law and decided to allocate an additional 50 million leva for the army. A few days later, Sandansky and other revolutionaries were granted amnesty, something they had long sought, and basically it meant that they were now going to be able to operate in Bulgaria without fear of arrest. So, Bulgaria is trying to kind of calm some of its internal conflicts, pour a little more money into the army, and, you know, crack down a bit with martial law. Soon, Bulgaria also signed a secret treaty with the Ottoman Empire. 
both states pledged to go to war if either was attacked by another Balkan power, to inform each other about any military mobilizations, but not attack another Balkan state without consulting the other. It was a recognition that Bulgaria at this point was far more interested in working with the Ottomans to potentially take Macedonia than working against them to take Eastern Thrace and Adrianople back. So again, even though Bulgaria is technically neutral and the Ottomans haven't joined the war, it's more evidence that Bulgaria is without a doubt leaning towards the central powers. Shortly afterwards, Bulgaria decided to refuse to allow food shipments bound for Serbia through its territory. However, it did allow 621 German officers disguised as civilians to cross Bulgaria on their way to Constantinople to help the Ottomans. In other words, again, Bulgaria was remaining neutral while laying the groundwork for a potential intervention on the side of the Central Powers. But the attractiveness of joining the war sooner rather than later diminished when the first Austro-Hungarian attack on Serbia failed. After bombarding Belgrade and northern Serbia across the Danube and Sava rivers for two weeks, giving the Serbs plenty of time to move their soldiers north to meet the threat, the Austro-Hungarians finally attempted to cross these rivers on pontoon bridges. However, they were soon defeated and pushed back across the rivers, taking heavy losses. Now, many had assumed that a decisive defeat of Serbia was basically a foregone conclusion and that the Austro-Hungarians would just roll over the Serbs. But this first battle had shown that Serbia could put up a fight. That said, the Serbs used most of their remaining ammunition, which was already quite depleted from the Balkan Wars, and weren't really as strong as this initial victory might make it seem. Remember, Serbia, Serbia remained in a tremendously difficult position. It was isolated, exhausted from recent fighting, and facing a threat from the north for the first time. Remember, all previous Serbian wars had been with the Ottomans or the Bulgarians to the south, so they weren't as used to fighting in this area, there wasn't as much infrastructure to support that fighting. Add to this the fact that at the same time the Serbs won this victory, the German army was steamrolling through Belgium on its way to Paris. And that's where we'll finish this episode. Radoslavov's liberal coalition has finally managed to secure a majority in the National Assembly, ending months of political instability. At the same time, repression of Bulgarians living in territories acquired by Serbia and Romania is on the rise, as both states work to solidify their control of territories where very few really want them as ruling powers. Otherwise, the First World War has begun, though funnily enough, it was actually briefly called the Third Balkan War when people still believed it could just be limited to a Serbian-Austrian conflict. The first weeks of this war have seen a mixed bag, where the Austro-Hungarian invasion of Serbia turned into a bloody failure, while the German invasion of Belgium has been a tremendous success for them. In light of this, Bulgaria, like its neighbors Greece, Romania, and the Ottoman Empire, is staying neutral for now, though it's not exactly a secret where Sofia's interests lay. Next time. We'll see how the war progresses and how debates within Bulgaria over how the country should respond will evolve. We'll also see the release of the Carnegie Report and its impact on perceptions of the Balkan Wars. As always, you won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. 
As always, you can check out more information at bghistorypodcast.com, where you can find lots of images and maps, lists of important characters, timelines, lots of stuff to add to every single episode. So I highly recommend checking that out, and I'll see you in the next one.